Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 135. Today in the show, we're joined by public land hunting guru, Tony Peterson. We're going to be dissecting his incredibly successful 2016 hunting season, in which he killed three public land bucks across three different states, plus another buck on private. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, as I just mentioned, we're going to be joined again by Tony Peterson and you might remember Tony from, I think it was early 2015, we had him on, and Tony is an outdoor writer, he's been published in places like Field and Stream, North American Whitetail, and Bowhunter, where he's also a gear editor, I believe, and uh, in that conversation, we talked to him all about his overall strategy and plan for hunting public lands, and I really enjoyed that one, but now, you know, it's a year later, and this past hunting season, the 2016 hunting season, he actually went and applied a lot of the things we talked about during that first podcast. And he applied them with a level of success that's, what's, I just think, very, very impressive. He went and killed three bucks in three different states, all on public land. And that's not an easy thing to do, I don't think. So what we're going to talk about with Tony is exactly how he did that. We're going to walk through those three hunts. We're going to walk through exactly how he figured out these properties, how we scouted them, what ultimately led to that success. And I think he even killed a fourth buck on some private land by permission. So we'll talk about all that kind of stuff and, uh, and see what we can learn. So what do you think, Dan? That's pretty cool. Uh, I would love to just be able to walk onto some public ground somewhere. And I'm sure he did, a, he did a lot of, you know, prep and, and research on it, but you know, have that kind of year. Oh yeah. It's, it's, uh, That'd be awesome. <laughs> the, most, the most the most bucks I've ever killed in one year is one. Well, it could be worse. I have some, I have some to shoot for. Yeah, <laughs> my, my max has been two so far. So we're uh, we're both a long ways away from a four buck year. But right. <laughs> can't uh, we can't complain too much. We we both had a good year. But you know, like I was talking about, I think it was last episode. Um, you know, I personally have been more interested in in doing more public land hunting. Um, right. And, and part of it was because of what Tony had shared with us last year. And then, 
you know, I think we talked about this too. Last spring, I was working on an article for Outdoor Life that had me interviewing five different guys that did some crazy hunting during the rut on public land. Did you ever get to read that article, by the way? I don't think I did. I think you'd like it because um, it was all about, like, people that are crazy for the rut that just do like, wild, off-the-wall, hardcore hunting strategies during the rut, all DIY. Right. It was, like, 95% public land. And um, and that was kind of what gave me the kick in the butt to try doing that trip I did in Montana. Right. Um, so, I don't know. It's kind of fun. I know we um, – we talked a little bit about those thoughts and ideas I have for next year already, but, uh, long story short, I'm pumped. So right. what, what else is new in your world? Not too much, man. Um, I've had to do this thing where I've had to take my son's diaper off in the bathtub before bath time, or if I do it outside the bathtub, he'll pee up, he'll pee all over the place. Why? I don't know the bathwater <laughs> sound or the I don't know just it it triggers him to pee so he's his little man's has a mind of its own he starts peeing everywhere so have you got it in the mouth yet oh dude you won't even believe it that was like <laughs> day four this, okay I gotta tell you something Mark you have an entire <laughs> like you have an entire world yet to be discovered uh -huh. as, as a parent. And I'm not, I'm not giving you shit now, but little boys, you know, they don't wait for puberty to be able to have their little man stand up. If that makes sense. It does. Okay? Yeah. Okay. okay. So sometimes when you take the diaper off, little man is standing at attention <laughs> and I've had, and that thing, if it's at attention, it's like a rifle, right? It's very accurate. <laughs> and one of the very, like, it was within two weeks of him being alive uh, or being out of the, out of my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled the diaper off and he blasts one right in my face. And I got a little bit on the corner of my mouth. Uh, and uh, I had a good laugh about it because yeah. I can, you know, someday I'm going to hold that over him like it, at a graduation speech or a wedding speech, I'll just I'll tell the story about the time Mac peed in my mouth. I feel like that's funnier for him telling the story about the time he peed in his dad's mouth. <laughs> uh. Oh, yeah. Fatherhood is uh, fatherhood is crazy, especially so. My daughter, you know, she's a she's a girl. And girls are different than boys. And uh, she says to me the other day, Dad. I don't love you anymore. I'm like, Ooh. oh, okay. And uh, so I said, hey, Mac, do you want a you want a cookie? <laughs> Mac, oh, he always loves cookies. And Ava's <laughs> like, what about my cookie? I'm like, you don't love me anymore, Dad. I love you right now. Can I have a cookie? So she's a you know she's a manipulator. Uh -huh. She's she's a, a side switcher, which I'm gonna have to learn how to do a better job at that. Yeah, uh, I'm glad that you're that you have both a boy and a girl before I have anything. So now I've, I've got someone to turn to for either one of those issues if and when it happens. So, right. um, when my wife was pregnant, I, my uncle's got two kids and I said, Hey, give me some advice on being a parent. What's the trick to raising kids? And he goes, Oh, you just got to ignore them. <laughs> How's that worked? <laughs> it's not, it doesn't work very good on my end because my kids are loud. That sounds so shocking to me. I can't believe that. <laughs> well, oh, man. Transition, and, and transitioning back to um, to deer hunting, you're going to hate me. But uh, Don't tell me. Don't tell me what I'm worried you're going to tell me because I was just about to ask you about this with high hopes. 
Now tell me. You know the answer. Dude, man, What's... I wish I could sit here and tell you. Like I'm only going to be get I'm I might only get two more times and that's tomorrow and Friday and then I'm done. Or there's a chance I don't get Friday and it's just tomorrow because I have a work meeting on uh on Friday and then I had scheduled Sunday, but then my wife's like, I wanna go out to dinner with a friend on Sunday. I'm like, Well, I thought we talked about uh, me going hunting. Can can that wait? Uh and then that right there that me asking that question was dumb because you don't question, you don't ask those questions, right? You, I, I, no, I disagree. I'm oh, going to disagree man. with you on that, Dan. Cause you haven't hunted in two months and she knows that this is like your favorite thing in the world other than your family and all that. And it's also this like side job you have, you run a deer hunting yeah. podcast and you've been such an incredible father and husband that you haven't gone out in two months I think I, I would be willing to. Well, I don't, I don't know if I'll call your wife, but I'll text your wife and tell her that you deserve a few hunts. I mean, you've sacrificed a lot. That usually, usually you'd be out there hunting, but you've spent so much time with your family. I'm sure. I don't think it's. I don't think it's. I don't think it's unfair for you to ask for a couple hunts. Mark, 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 Mark. Um, I don't really know what to say right now. But if you called my wife and you said, "Hey, uh, Dan deserves to go hunting." Because he's been he's been doing all these things. It's been since November. She would go, oh yeah, okay, to you. Hang up the phone and then probably domestic abuse my ass. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, man. I, I'm sure I, I don't I don't even I don't know your wife personally at all, <laughs> so I can't comment on that. I'm sure she's wonderful, right? But man, it's that's a long brutal. time. That's brutal to not be able to have a little bit of give there. I don't know. It's tough. And I know there's a lot of other guys out there that have the same kind of situation as me. Um, I, I am truly thankful though, that I get the time that I do when it's not so crazy busy. Um, cause she's crazy busy with her business. I'm crazy bus busy with not only my business, but my job as well. And, uh, there's just sometimes, it, you know, it's, it's always a give and take, right? So I'm giving late season so I can go to the ATA show without any dispute. I got to, you know, I got a lot of weekends in October. I mean, this, this year I really didn't hunt a lot, but, you know, it, sometimes it's good to have a short season, uh, which may make next season really hard for her. Uh, but, you know, I get a, I get a, get some brownie points and I get a, go on an elk hunt in September and go on, go shed hunting in March and go to the ATA show this year. So, you know, sometimes there's, sometimes there's battles worth fighting. And then there's sometimes there's battles worth, uh, backing up, letting whatever happens happen. And then, you know, there's that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think picking your battles is important. So if that if this isn't a battle that if this is not the right battle pick, I I will trust your judgment. I will I will not argue with you on that one because there is something to be said about peace before justice, right? Um, which right. which definitely is something to be said for too. So and there's also that saying, if Mama's happy, everybody's happy. Yeah, my wife very subtly 
hung a sign right over my side of the bed that says, happy wife, happy life. That's right. <laughs> so I'm That's reminded right. of that every day. That's a fact, Jack. <sighs> but um, so no late season hunting for you yet. That's a bummer, but it is what it is. Yep. I I, uh, I did go out again since we talked, and I killed another doe. Awesome. Which was awesome, yeah. And it was a much better hunt than the one we talked about last week because I did not miss any deer. And I did not have to get drawn like four different times before I finally got a shot. I was sitting in my hay bale blind, um, and that thing is awesome. Yeah. Um, these deer have no clue at all that you are in there. And yeah. um, I had deer 10 yards, and um, I got drawn back really nice, and nice big mature doe at like 20. And uh, double lunged her, and she was dead 50 yards later, and it was easy peasy. So... Did you have another all-night uh, meatpacking no. session? No. With this one, actually, we are giving most of it to my sister-in-law and her family. Oh, um, nice. They wanted some venison, and so uh, they were going to pay to have it processed for them. So I dropped it off at the processor for them. And um, though when I found out that they wanted everything ground, and I was like, okay, there's no way that I am okay with a deer that I shot <laughs> – having the back straps and tenderloin and everything. So I said, I'm going to keep the back straps and the tenderloin and some steaks, and then you can have all the rest of the hamper. Right, right. And, um, but yeah, so that was cool. And it was cool that, um, you know, what's what's neat is that um, I've got three nieces and a nephew, and they're, um, they don't hunt, like, with their family. But I've taken out my nephew a couple times in the past. I need to do a better job of it. Um, but I've gotten my niece into shooting a bow. We got our bow for her birthday and the new arrows and a target for Christmas, and she's really getting into it. So I'm going to start taking her out. But I'm excited about the fact that they're now going to have venison that came from Uncle Mark, and I can sit there and we can talk about that. You know, just like you talked about with your daughter, how cool that was, um, yep. you know, recovering that deer. I'm excited to be able to conversations like that with, with the girls and, and talk about, yeah, you know, the hamburger you're eating right now. You know, that came oh. from this and talk about that. So that's oh. I'm I'm excited about that. Um and another interesting thing really quick I want to talk about is I ate deer heart for the first time. Yes. I saw that and I'm a little bit jealous because I've always wanted to do that, but I've never never followed through on it. I, I can't recommend it enough. Like it was always one of those things like yeah, I, we, my family we just never did. So I had yeah. no context with it, no experience with it before. So it just seemed like a I don't know. I just assumed it would taste gross and didn't know what to do with it. But finally, I was like, I got to try it. Um, and it was so, 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 so good. And it was a lot less, like, weird than I expected. I expected to have this really strange – I didn't expect it to taste like meat. But really, when you take off – you know, when you take the heart, you cut it open and you take off some of the fat and there's some weird connective tissue in the valves and stuff. But otherwise, it's yeah. just a big piece of meat. It's like a steak that's rolled – into a, a closed burrito kind of and you just take the filling out and you unroll it kind of and then you're basically left with what's based steak and um it's got a slightly different texture and a slightly different kind of little bit of tang to it um yeah. but man it's really good we we followed one of the recipes in hank shaw's cookbook um and basically marinated the heart overnight and then grilled it excuse me, grilled it along with peppers and then sliced that up real thin, the steak, and then ate that with the peppers. And dude, it was, it was phenomenal. 
Like it wasn't just bearable, which is what I was kind of hoping for. I was hoping at least I could like stomach it and I'd feel cool about, you know, having eaten the heart and felt good about, you know, using more of the deer. But it wasn't just that. It was like something that I could crave. So um, next time you shoot a deer, save a heart, try that recipe, um, hands down, a winner. Looking forward to it. Yeah, man. So that's all I've got for stories on my end. Do you have anything else uh, of of note? No, not really. Well, then we got one more thing, Dan. Um, Okay, what's that? Yeah, but I know you you actually have to go before our interview with Tony. But before we let you go, can you help me with our sickest story today? Okay, what are we going to talk about? So, as you know, like every week we have to thank, well, we we take a break to thank our partners at Sick of Gear. And we usually share a story from some hunter who had a particularly interesting or surprising or, you know, compelling or emotional experience while out hunting in their sick of gear. So what I want you to do, Dan, I'm going to put you on the spot right now. Okay. Will you tell us a Sitka story from your 2016? Something that's surprising or interesting or compelling, or was there some moment this past season that we haven't talked about that you think would be worthy of a Sitka story? What do you got? Well, I tell you, I used to be that guy who would wear, when it would get cold, wear like 15 hooded sweatshirts, 15 pair of sweatpants, some Carhartt overalls, then some camo on top. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like. You were I the hobo like, of hunters. Right. I looked like the kid off of the Christmas story. <laughs> All right. That kid who wore like 14 snowmobile suits. Uh-huh. That's what I looked like. And what would happen is I would. I'd be soaking wet with sweat when I would go to get to the stand and climb up. And then it was just a matter of time and I'd be, I'd be done. Right. I'd be so cold. And I think it was the 2014, um, 2014, I was still doing that type of, that type of clothing. And then I, I got my Sitka gear in 2015 and Instantly, the just the sweat wicking ability of their um, of their lightweight core series shirts and pants. Yeah, yeah, just you could I could literally tell the difference in in where my moisture was going. It was not hanging around on my skin. It wasn't hanging around on my clothes. It was going somewhere else. And then as it, as you, as you know, I transition into late season. It gets not this year, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but then I'm wearing less layers to, to stay warm. And if I get cold, I can quickly just take one of those layers off, uh, or hot. Uh, if I get cold, I can put the layer back on and I'm not a scientist. I know we've, you know, the first series of commercials we've done with, you know, when, uh, we, we talked with Sitka and they kind of break down all the, the science and technology behind their garments, mm-hmm. dude, it, whatever, whatever they're doing is working and just being comfortable in the stand is so important. I mean, it's one of the biggest parts of hunting. I mean, if you're not comfortable, if you're cold, if you're hot, if you're shaking, cause you know, you're so cold and you're, and your mind is thinking about 
your body temperature or things that aren't, aren't, you know, here comes a buck, but I'm cold. You should be thinking about here comes the buck. I want to kill it. You know what I mean? Very true. I, I think I want to trademark or we'll see if Sika wants to trademark what you just said there. You know, our, our new Sika slogan is just be, dude, I don't know what they're doing, but it's working. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good stuff. <laughs> here at Sitka Gear, we make the best products. Dude, we don't know what we're doing, <laughs> yeah. but it's working. Yeah. That's scientific right there. That's, that's beautiful. And with, <laughs> and with that, <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about what Sitka Gear is doing, you can visit SitkaGear.com. And now we're going to let you go, Dan. Thank you for your impromptu Sika story. <laughs> and we're going to give Tony Peterson a call. All right, with us on the line now is Tony Peterson. Welcome back, Tony. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I, uh, I've enjoyed getting to chat with you more just you know offline, in person over the past year or so since we had you on the podcast back in early 16. Um, so I'm particularly excited now to have you back on the show because I feel like I've gotten to know you better and I also know that you've got a whole lot more to share from a hunting perspective than we even got to touch on first time. So, so thanks for doing this, Tony. Sure, no problem. I'm, I am glad to be back. This is fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, like I just mentioned, off the air, Dan isn't able to be with us here today, but I know he was bummed about that too because I think he really enjoyed our chat back in April of 15, I think it was. So I guess I'm kind of curious, Tony. We're in January now. Um, most okay. most everyone's deer hunting seasons are done. You've had a heck of a season. If you had to describe your 2016 season in a word or a phrase, how would you how would you describe it? Old school. That's an easy one for me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, 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 went, I went back to my roots this year. Um, you know, not entirely, but uh, I made a considerable effort to, you know, sort of get rid of the technology and, and hunt sign and, and hang stands, hang a lot of stands, and just go back to the way I hunted before I had trail cameras and all kinds of access to information and everything. Um, and it was, it changed a lot of things for me to do that. What did that pay off? Do you think that helped you or hurt you this year doing that? It, it helped me immensely. I, I to, to put it in perspective, not only did, I mean, I had a good season, I had a great season, but I enjoyed it so much more than I have in the last few years because I felt like I was really hunting. I wasn't just checking trail cameras and going up, oh, nobody's coming by here in the daylight. I'm not going to hunt here or whatever. I was walking into new places. Um, you know, mostly I spent most of my season on public land, um, mostly just looking for sign and hanging a stand and observing. And if I saw something, I moved in on it. Or if I didn't, I, you know, just, just, I felt like I was hunting and I really enjoyed it this year. Yeah. I know what you mean. It, it, it is funny how technology has infiltrated so much of what we do as hunters. And I think you know, a lot of that can be good, but to the same, at the same point, I definitely sometimes feel like it gets to be too much too. And we were just talking before we started recording about phones. That's another one like phones, yeah. how often we're just connected to that thing all the time. That takes a lot away from a hunt, I think. Yeah, oh, it certainly does. I mean, I read your article about leaving a phone at home and I did that, I did that accidentally this fall and realized how much I enjoyed it. Um, so you know, like I said before we started recording here, I, I spent some time just shutting it down and sticking it in my pack. You know, and you, you see more animals, you enjoy your sitting, you, you almost, you, you're so dependent on that phone in a lot of situations to, you know, to fill the gaps between deer sightings or whatever. And, 
it, you know, that's not why we do it. Um, it's, you know, we're all hypocrites with it for the most part, but it's nice to step away from that stuff. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm to the point I, with that I feel the same way about trail cameras. Um, you know, I, I had grown so dependent on them and had let them, you know, the, what they were showing me make my hunting decisions. And I'm sitting here going, well, I have to hunt anyway. And now I'm, I'm using these things. And a lot of times I feel like they're showing me that my hunt's not going to be worth it, but I go anyway. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to start pulling these suckers and kind of hunting, uh, the way I used to. And I, I found out that I was, I, I got on a lot of good deer and I, I really had a lot of fun doing it. And you know, we can get into this later if you want, but one thing I learned this year is I may have had my best mid-October hunting ever because I really started doing that, and that's how I used to hunt in October. You know, I never believed in the lull, and I still don't really buy into it that much, but I saw more mature bucks in the middle of October when you aren't supposed to this year than I have in years, and I'm talking public land deer. Um and you, th- so and you just, think that's because you weren't letting trail cameras keep you out of the woods? I, yeah, I was, I was forcing myself to hunt, and I was hunting by finding fresh sign. And so I know, you know, and not to say that I couldn't use trail cameras to help me there, but so often, you know, that time of year, our trail cameras are in places where we may only get nighttime photos or, you know, the, the deer movement in general seems to go down a little bit. And we use it as an excuse to say, well, heck, I'll just wait for the rut or I'll, you know, I'll wait for Halloween, the pre-rut or whatever. And I didn't do that. I just said, you know, no trail cameras. I'm just going to go keep hunting. And I saw a lot of good deer, killed some deer. And I was just like, I was enjoying it so much. And I realized that, you know, I'd, I'd been missing out on something by relying on trail cameras to scout for me so much. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that we were talking to, Donnie Vincent a couple weeks ago and he had talked about the same thing about how he kind of wanted to go away from trial cameras maybe because he found that it kind of took away from the the mystery of the hunt because he knew well there's going to be these four bucks and that's it and you saw them and you knew them and there's something to be said about a new a deer that you've never seen before showing up and just that pure excitement of while it might be seeing a deer or just wondering what might appear and knowing that anything could possibly show up that's kind of cool too yep yeah it's you know we've we've lost a lot of that mystery and you know in some ways we've gone to you know kind of raising deer and trying to get them to the right age and there's there's a different feeling about that and that can be super enjoyable don't get me wrong but there also is that you know that aspect that donnie was referring to where you're just missing that you know when you hear something walking in on you and you look and recognize that deer immediately it's, it's just different you know, um, it's, it's nice to look up and see a stranger. Yeah. 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 And I agree with you. I, I, I there's something really enjoyable about both, but it's nice to have yep. both different experiences, which is a big part of what, you know, um, what I enjoyed about my own public land hunt this year when I was hunting a brand new property, whether it's public or private, when I hunt a brand new place that you know, I'm just kind of figuring out, I love that that question of what might be coming, you know, what's going to be around the corner. What am I going to figure out? What's going to be like the aha moment. Um, and that's a big part of why I've, I've come to, you know, being more intrigued with public land hunting. And, and some of that goes to some of our conversations that you and me have had. Um, so I appreciate that for, you know, kind of, kind of getting me excited, Tony. Um, well, it's, you know, you forget that you get used to a property and you get used to how the deer use it. And so then that's why we kind of invent these things where we're like, okay, I want this particular mature buck. And that's why you see a lot of these people who have premier properties, 
you know, they're setting their standards super high to make some sort of challenge out of it because yeah. they know their ground so well. And then, like you did, you know, out in Montana, you go out to a place you've never been to and you've only seen maybe on aerial photos, and you get there and there's a there's a whole aspect to that kind of hunting that you sort of miss out on when you're real familiar with the property that you're you're managing or taking care of or whatever. And and like you said, you know, that's fun too, but it's nice to have both. And it's nice to go out and just challenge yourself and, and hunt those deer that you've never laid eyes on before. And it's it's just a neat experience. Yeah. And I also think by putting yourself in those new situations, whether it's public or just a new spot in general, um, that provides learnings that you can then apply to your usual places that you always hunt because when you get when you hunt the same place over and over you get stuck in a routine or you know what works or what has worked well enough in the past and you stick to what's safe and i think when you can try new things and take new risks in a new area or be forced to try new things because of this brand new situation all that stuff applies to the to your other hunts too and that that was a big aha aha moment for me in 2016. Well, without question. I mean, it, we get so locked into what we think we know that we just, we, we ride that right into the ditch, I think. And, it, you know, so often I, I talk to people and they're like, oh, the deer never do this, or they never do that on my property, or I never see them here. Or, you know, I've got a buddy that owns a, a really cool property down by, um, in, in southeastern Minnesota, and he's got a little creek running through the back end of it, and he will not go back there and bow hunt because he's scared he's going he's gonna to blow all the deer out. And I'm like, man, during the rut, in the pre-rut, those deer are coming in, coming and going down that creek bottom all day long. So, you know, maybe if you walk in there, yeah, you might blow some deer out. But the risk-reward there to me is like, go go take a look. Go hunt it and just see how bad it really is. You know, we make up our mind about that kind of stuff. Or, you know, you can't kill a big buck in mid-October or you can't snort wheeze in a little buck or something like that. And we take that stuff as, as just fact. And that's not how things work out there. Um it changes every day. And a lot of the things that we really believe about deer, I think, I think that makes us become our own worst enemy. Yeah, I agree. I was reading a book, uh, just last night actually, and this isn't related to hunting, but it's, I think you can apply it to hunting and like having strategies The the quote, or this guy said this kind of life philosophy he has was this, he said, I have strong views loosely held. So he has strong opinions and he's, you know, willing to understand them really well and and understand the logic behind these things. But at the same time, he's not so stubborn to stick to it no matter what else he sees and no matter what other opinions might be out there. So I think that's something that can really be applied to hunting, you know, develop strong ideas about how you hunt, but don't be so married to them that you're not willing to open your eyes to new ways of doing things or adjustments. Yeah, without question. I mean, I just, I, I could not agree with that more. I think that we just get so locked into what we think is going to happen or should happen or shouldn't happen, and we forget that sometimes we're wrong, and and the situation changes every time you hunt and every time you go to a new stand and every time the wind blows a different direction and the pressure changes, and there's all of these variables that just that, that make everything different in an instant. Yeah. And we don't, we don't like that. You know I mean? We like to have control and we like to say, we know this is what's going to happen, but that's not how it works. Yeah. And if you, you give into that a little bit and just, just let it just go naturally, man, it can be, it can be a lot of fun out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk real world. Let's talk about how you actually applied some of these things here in 2016. You, your season started pretty early, I think sometime in September. So what I was kind of hoping we could do was 
you if you just want to walk us through your season as it went and I think you know as we get to some interesting topics I'm probably going to want to jump in and and kind of pry on some of these things and try to get some of the details out of you but but maybe walk us through it and um, we'll see what we can learn about how you applied some of these tactics to your public land hunts across all these different states and um, I'm interested to hear about it because I haven't actually got to hear about these hunts so um so what what happened sure. really? um you know I started out uh went and got my butt kicked in Colorado for elk and, and antelope and came home to whitetails which are usually treat me a lot better um, but I started out in Minnesota on a, on a dairy farm I got permission on, um, mostly because I've been watching this buck. We talked about this deer um, the last time I was on. I've been watching a deer that's, you know, he's a legit uh, net booner, the, the kind of deer that I've never really felt I had a good chance to hunt. And uh, that deer, you know, I looked for him this summer and I found him. He was in the same place that I expected him to be. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, running cameras and looking for that deer, which is this, that deer is one of the reasons why I said enough and decided to, to, to take my cameras down and just go hunt for fun. Uh, because no matter what I did, that deer seemed to be moving at night, even in the summer. Um, and I had one place that I thought I might kill him on a little tiny water hole close to his bedding area. And he was like maybe showing up once in a while, right at shooting light in the morning before he'd lay down. And right before I had a chance to hunt him, I got pictures of a dog uh, running through there and everything, everything went away, at least in the near term. (laughs) And so, you know, I had pinned my hopes on this deer that, you know, has evaded me for three years. And, you know, it just, I was like, this is just probably not going to happen. Why am I, why am I losing sleep over this buck? And does it really matter that much? And it just kind of decided after that, I was going to, I was going to take it easy on him. You know, I was still paying attention to him and trying to see if there was a possibility, but that experience opening weekend in the first, the first two weekends of the season, really, I, I, I focused on that buck and it just, it just felt like I was wasting my time and I knew there were other people going in there and there were other people had pictures of him and I didn't want to get rolled up into that. You know, I I wanted to have a chance at him, but I was losing my enjoyment for it. Mm -hmm. And so after the first two weeks, I ended up um, heading to South Dakota for their opener out there to hunt public land. Um, I actually went out there with Dave Herto from field and stream, uh, field and stream magazine. And we got there a day early and just said, you know, we're going to go hunt ponds because it's early. We're going to scout. I walked him just about to death uh, the first day we were there because <laughs> we went out, hung some stands, and we, we put on some miles. But some of the places that I had scouted this spring out there didn't look that good to me. When we got there, there was cattle in there, or the pond was dried up, or, you know, there was a fair amount of EHD kills out there that we found, some good bucks. And so... You know how it is when you go out to public land. You have this idea in your mind that this is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. Then you show up and go, well, five things have changed, right? And so we hung some stands and, you know, hunted the first morning, saw some deer. And that that evening, the first evening of the season, we had, we had scouted this ranch that looked really good it looked like it was just the place but i thought it was going to be overrun with people because it was opening day and it was public land now real quick tony and so what sorry really quick here 
when you say you scouted this property, how are you actually scouting it? Are you walking the whole thing? Are you just looking at the map and observing from a distance? Or how are you doing it in this situation? Walking. This this was a boots-on-the-ground situation because we had one day. So it wasn't like we were laying back glassing. It was just, you know, go into this spot, look at it. If it's good, hang a stand. If not, carry the stand out and go to the next spot. And so we walked a lot. Um, and I think, I can't remember, I think we hung three or four stands that day. Um, but the place that I really wanted to hang a stand, I didn't because I thought somebody else would be in there. And so the one place where I was like, this might be it, I didn't hunt it. And this is a lesson for everybody. I said, I'm just not going to do it because I know somebody's going to be in there. Well, opening night, I dropped Dave off. He went into a spot, and I went to hunt a different stand, and the wind was bad when I got there. And I was kind of running out of time, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to go look at this property and see if anybody's parked there. And there wasn't a single truck there on opening night. And so I grabbed a stand. I ran in there, and as I was hanging that stand, I was standing up there, finished finishing up stand hanging a buck ran in to the water um, the pond that I was on and I actually pulled my bow up while he was drinking and shot him no way. Um, before I <laughs> had the stand fully ready to go and so wow uh, it was one of those things where and so the crazy part is the buck that I killed I mean I, I got him photographed gutted and drugged back to the truck before it was even dark that's how close this pond was to the parking area but it was one of those deals where there just wasn't anybody there that day. A guy showed up later. It, it, things changed. But at that moment, when I walked in there and I saw all those tracks on that pond and the way it set up for the wind and the way you could get in there, I was like, this is where I want to hunt, but I'm not going to because I think somebody's going to be there. Well, guess what? Nobody was. You know, I mean, it was just, it was one of those things where I was like, what I thought I knew was wrong. Yeah. And so I started out there and killed my first buck of the season. And then I ended up getting to scout for four days while Dave hunted. He ended up killing a buck the last night. But what I found after killing my buck was there were a whole bunch of bucks on that property, including a deer that I walked up on um, while I was burning some boot leather. That is probably the biggest buck I've ever laid eyes on on the hoof. Um, looked like to me my initial impression was like 180s um you know and they're hard to judge but he was close and he was huge and he was on public land and it was just one of those deals where you're like man i i, I never expected that to be there and there he was <laughs> and so that was a really cool experience you know what i mean it was just it was a new property. It was one of those things where you're out there learning, and it was really good for me to get to spend four days just glassing and walking and watching deer because I'm going back next year, and I feel like i got a chance to kill a really big deer there because yeah. they're there. So, so, so here, here's what I'm curious about. Number one, what made you choose the, these properties when you were scouting from home, when you're looking at the maps and everything, what drew you to this initial area first? Well, so I started out, um, I went to this area last year um, because I had driven by it um, several times to go hunt western South Dakota for antelope and mule deer. And last year, at it was like during Halloween weekend, I was looking at maps. 
and I found a property that I liked, and I went out there and I killed a buck on it. And so this spring we went back, but a couple buddies and I did, and we turkey hunted it, partially so I could scout it more because I like the area. There's not a lot of people there. There's good walk-in land, um, plenty of deer. You know, you're far enough south where you don't get the winter kill. It's just there's a lot, a lot of things to it. No big cities anywhere near it. Um, good places to camp. Everything, you know. And so after scouting it this spring. Uh, you know, I felt pretty good about it. And so we went back there and I'll be going back again. And one of the reasons I like it is because there are big properties there. So it's not like I'm hunting a 40 acre chunk or an 80 acre chunk. It's like you may have a 4,000 acre ranch to hunt or five 4,000 acre ranches to hunt within 20 miles of you. So my thing is to get away from people, which is why I didn't set up on that pond originally, because I don't want to hunt around people. I want to go. I'd much rather hike two miles in and get away from people than, than fight crowds. And those sides of properties in that kind of area, you can do that. Yeah. So that's why, you know, that's why I really started devoting some time to it. When, when you went in there and started walking it, whether it be during turkey season or that first day when you got back there in the fall, what specifically were you looking for on the ground, you know, that day? Was it, you know, what specific things led you to say, okay, I want to hunt here? Um, well, you know, I went into it looking for water because it was it was going to be fairly hot. You know, South Dakota's opener is, you know, always like the third weekend of September. So you might be like anywhere from the 20th to maybe the 26th or something. Um, so it's usually fairly warm and even if it's not those deer kind of water anyway so i start by looking at the aerial photos of just finding water i love hunting water and if i find you know i'll mark you know six ponds or eight ponds that i want to check out that time of year when i walk in there and look at them you know you're looking for tracks around the pond of course to see how much usage it's got but i'm looking for uh rubs as well a lot of times when those bucks come into water, they'll stage those places too because those ponds are they're cattle ponds, and they're just situated in places where they're you know a couple hundred yards off the nearest field, and there's cover between you and the field. It's just, it's amazing how often it works out that way, and so those bucks will come in there, morning or evening. Evenings tend to be a little better, but they'll water, they'll spar a little bit, they'll they'll make some rubs. So if I find one that's easy to access or it's it, it accessible without blowing everything out. And there's, you know, a few random rubs around it and the tracks are there. I'll hunt it every time. And so, you know, it's not, we sometimes we overthink this stuff and I just, that time of year deer get thirsty and I like to be where they can drink, you know? Makes sense. Do you, do you hunt mornings on those early public land hunts too? Or, you know, I know a lot of guys always. tend to, sorry, go ahead. Always. Uh, always. You know, early season, like you were going to say, you know, a lot of guys are like, oh, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin my stuff by going in the morning. And that's another thing that I just, I can never believe is, you know, people will say, well, I can't hunt there in the morning or I can't hunt this property in the morning because I'll blow deer out. I'm like, there's no situation you can find where you can sneak in and hunt mornings. Like to me, that's crazy. Um, I always, if I have a day to hunt, I always hunt mornings and evenings. I don't ever... I, I don't save stuff, you know. I don't. I don't play it safe, and you know, I, if if it can be hunted now, I'll hunt it. Let me put it that way. 
Now, is that different when you're hunting a piece of public land like that with a, you know, a limited amount of time versus like a private piece of property that you've got sole access to? No. And here's why I don't have any private pieces of property that I have sole access to. And the, the closest I've got is in Minnesota where I can't count on the rut because our gun season opens the first Saturday of November. So for me to save stuff just doesn't work. I need to hunt. And what I found when you go into it with that attitude is of, you know, I am going to hunt mornings and I'm going to hunt during the lull. I'm going to hunt these times when deer aren't supposed to move. You find out that those deer are moving and you can kill them. So I don't, you know, I'm not saying if you've got a premier property and you get to hunt the rut and all that stuff, you know, you know save your deer, do whatever you, you know, save your stand site. That's fine. But my personal strategy is I don't do it. I mean, your logic makes sense with that situation. I can't argue with that. Um, now, in a situation like you had there, you know, you mentioned how you asked someone what you can't find a way to get in there in the mornings without, you know, without screwing it up. When you were out there on that public land, did you have to do anything unique to be able to hunt those spots in the morning or to have Dave hunt in the mornings when you were there? No. So we just, I just look for areas. I look for places where you can sneak in. You know, we were hunting water in the mornings as well, and I just look for a pond that you can sneak into. That's that's just it. You know, and sometimes you're going to jump deer, but, man, it's, you know, versus not hunting, I'll take that every time. Yeah. You know, I, I find, I you know, there are situations. I mean, I've got places on my farm in southeastern Minnesota that I hunt a lot where it's pretty difficult to hunt in the morning. There are ways I could do it, especially if I can – you know, get windy conditions or rainy conditions in the morning to sneak through a cornfield or something. But, you know, sometimes the winds are wrong or it's too calm or you can't, you can't go where you want to. But I, that's why I try real hard to have plan B, C, D, E right on down the line, you know? Yeah. So what was Dave's setup that ultimately led to him killing that buck on the last day? Um, we put him on a, uh, this goofy spot on a cornfield, um, that had a pond in the middle of it and it just it was another spot that it looked too easy i was just i didn't really want to set up there but because i had time to scout i realized there were far more deer coming out there than i thought and so we went in and hung a stand and he ended up having a big deer come out uh, that didn't give him a shot and then right at last light had a couple other smaller bucks come in and he thumped one of them and so it was just one of those deals where it was public land with a cornfield on it. That was actually, the corn was chopped for silage. Um, and there was a pond in there that led to a draw and just one of those things, you know, wow. it looked, it looked too easy, you know, but that's one of the reasons why I go to some of those places because there's just fewer hunters. So there's less pressure. So even those, those gimme spots can pay off, you know, here in Minnesota, I probably wouldn't be able to find something that easy. Yeah, you know, there's there are more hunters. You know, you wouldn't in Michigan. That'd be real hard to do. Pennsylvania, <laughs> yeah. you know, it just it just would be. So so where'd you go? What was next? You guys had an awesome South Dakota hunt. What uh, what happened then? Um, you know, after South Dakota, I came back and I I I kind of put my mind to uh, Wisconsin. I, I'm starting to get obsessed with killing a. Uh, good bucks in the, the big woods of northern Wisconsin. I think we talked about that um, the last time I was on here. And so I felt kind of stupid because I owned two little properties over there that I didn't hunt at all. I let my buddies hunt them, 
and I went on public land over there and just had an absolute blast uh, hunting big woods deer and looking for sign and hanging stand after stand after stand until I caught up to one. So how how how'd you do it? Because that big woods hunting is like one of those. I don't know. It's one of the questions we get the most about because so many people hunt in scenarios like that. Like you said, northern Michigan, northern Wisconsin, Minnesota, New York, yeah. and it's not really talked about a whole lot in the hunting media. You know, you're not seeing Bill Winky or Mark yeah. Drury hanging a stand in the big woods. Um, how did you go about doing that? Especially if without were you not using trail cameras for that whole process either? No, I was not. Um, partially because the land, the type of land I was hunting, which is managed forest land. If to use trail cameras on it, you have to get permission from the owner because it's it's private land open to the public through a tax program. And so, you know, I, I didn't want to track down the owner and I didn't want to use cameras anyway. Um, so what I did is I found, a, I found a parcel of land that was owned by a logging company or is owned by a logging company. And they, it, it got logged probably about three years ago. And so it's this little island of thick cover in the middle of miles of big woods where everything else seems to be kind of the same. And this property has this little tiny trout stream running through it. So it has, it has water. Um, and so I found it last year grouse hunting and decided I was going to go back. So I scouted it this past spring and then I scouted it in the summer and I went in there uh, with a stand on my back and got into that little trout stream and started looking for rubs. And set up the first night, let a buck go, saw another buck, moved around that property until I got to a spot where uh, I saw a really good buck in the middle of October, Um, one of the biggest deer I saw all season. And I moved in on that spot after I watched it for about three days, um, and all the deer seemed to be coming off of this hillside and just popping up onto this little ridge. You'd see them come down, and then they'd get a running start, and they'd run straight up it. And so I moved over there and actually set up right where I had watched that buck make a rub and got in. You could hunt it in the morning and the evening, too. That was an important part. You could you could sneak in on this logging road either time of day and hunt it because they were coming and going through there. It wasn't like a – you know, I mean, it's big woods, so there aren't like a ton of deer in there. You're not worried about like blowing – random deer out while you're going in or anything. I mean, the, the population density is pretty low, but I ended up moving in there. And the first morning I sat on that spot, um, I don't know, it was probably maybe an hour into the morning. And I looked up at a buck and made it past me feeding his way, just browsing his way through the, uh, underbrush. And because he was passing, I couldn't hear him because the Creek was right below my stand. And so he was already on his way beyond me. And it was, I don't know, I think October 10th or something. Um, and so I grunted at him, and he did nothing. He wouldn't, he wouldn't even pay attention to it. So I snort-wheezed at him, and he stopped. And I could tell I got his attention, and I snort-wheezed again. He stayed there. It took me five snort-wheezes in a row, and he literally tipped his head back like he was rolling his eyes, saying, all right, buddy. And he turned around, and he rake-brushed the whole way in, and he came to 20 yards, and I shot him. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. So it was it was so cool. I mean, it just, it was one of those deals where, you know, you see deer using a specific spot, move in there and then a buck comes through. And not only that, you get to call him in. It was just, it was neat. So when you started out, like, uh, 
you walked down this creek, you said, and you were just looking for rubs. And so did you start this whole process basing your stand location simply on, I can access with this trout stream, and I'm looking for some sign that a buck has been here, and so that rub was it, and then from there it was sit, observe, move to where you saw the movement, and then continued that? Is that exactly what you did, or how are you choosing yeah. where to set up? Pretty much. I mean, I, I, I look for sign. I like rubs a lot. I hunt rubs a lot, and I like to observe. So on that property, I hunted it probably... I don't know, maybe seven days before I killed that buck total in October. And I probably moved stands a dozen times. Um, and just just moving where I'm seeing deer. And if I'm not, if I sit somewhere and I don't see deer in a morning or an evening, usually I give it two. I'll give it both, a morning and an evening. If the conditions are right and I don't see something, I move. And so I ended up going up that creek. And the first time I did it, I didn't go far enough up, and I bailed and, and watched some other stuff, and then I knew I was kind of missing something, so I came back, and I just needed to go a little farther up the creek, and it was just the place. That's just what they were using. There was a lot of good security cover there. They were, they could, they could play the wind well. They could travel through it well. It was, it was just the right spot, you know. Did you have any other issues with other hunters back in there? Did, was anybody else there? There were people there. Um, there were a fair amount of people driving through there on four wheelers, um, kind of hunting grouse and not, I didn't see a lot of bow hunting activity, uh, but there were, there was a fair amount of people activity. And that's one of the reasons why that spot was so good because it was one of the few places on the property that you couldn't access with a four wheeler. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, that's, you find that all the time out there on public land. Yeah. <laughs> so moving moving around as much as you did, sounds like you were moving stands sometimes multiple times a day or stuff like that. How What's your what's your process for getting in and out with hanging a new stand, pulling it down? Do you have any trick to how you're doing that in a quiet, slow fashion or what specific stands, sticks, et cetera, you, you're using? Um, I use, you know, primarily I use lone wolf sticks this year. Um because, you know, a lot of those, a lot of public land, you can't use anything screw-in. So you can't just carry in a handful of screw-in steps. And so I, I got my system down this year where I was using, uh, you know, lone wolf climbing sticks. And then I was using a uh, Millennium tree stand. I can't remember what the heck the, the model is, but it's really lightweight. They're like seven and a half pounds. So they're not very big. But I can, I can you know, put the whole setup on my back with my, my safety harness and everything and, you know, only be out about 25 pounds and go in and just take my time and pick the right spot. You know, it's, it takes, it takes a comfort level. It's just like using a climbing stand or anything like that. Like you're, you'll be much better with it if you've done it a whole bunch and you know enough to be patient and not rush it and understand that if you put a stand up and it's not going to work for some reason, if it's really uncomfortable or you can't shoot or something, you just got to pull that sucker down and start over. That's the hard part. It, it ends yeah. up being a lot of work. And, you know, that, that's that's the part that's the least amount of fun. I mean, I had times where I was hanging stands this year where I was like, man, I want to go on an outfitted hunt bad. <laughs> I just want to go have somebody else do the work, you know, because you know how it is. You're just, it's just you and you're doing it and, you can't, you know, I don't want to waste a sit. So I had a lot of times where I'd hang a stand, I'd get into it, I'd look around and go, nope, and I have to pull it and start over. Yeah, that's brutal. <laughs> I had. It, it is, but, it, you know, when you get it right, it's awesome. Yeah, 
for sure. I had a, I had a hunt this year um, in early November where I'd been observing a buck I was after moving in a certain location, but I didn't have a stand there, and I kept making excuses for why I shouldn't go over there. But finally, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it. Even though it's like a hard-to-access place, and I was worried about spooking deer better close to it, um, they were cutting a cornfield right next to this kind of bedding area type spot. And so I had this idea that I would sneak in there with my sticks and stand, and I would time when I walked to when the combine was close so that I could scurry as quickly as I could when the combine was close, making a lot of noise. And then as the combine moved away, I would, I would freeze and I would crouch down and I'd wait because it was one of those really crunchy, completely quiet, no wind type days. So any noise I made, I knew these deer were going to hear me. So I spent like an hour getting to that stand and it wasn't that far of a distance, but just trying to be perfect about it, waiting when the combine was timed and everything. Finally, I get to the spot where I'm, I find the tree I'm ready to climb up in here and, and get all situated. I was so proud of myself for doing it the hard way and making sure I didn't spook anything going in. And I'm at the base of the tree, and I go to get my sticks. And I realize I left my climbing sticks at my house. <laughs> awesome. So, so that was one of those hanging hunts that was really a fail. But uh, yep. but I've had the same problems where either I forget something or I get in there and I realize it's wrong. And actually that same hunt, I ended up – being able to go back get sticks, I actually had my wife drive. A, this was a piece of private land. I was able to have her come out with a four wheeler and drop them off, but it was a debacle. And I ended up trying to get in a tree, and then I came down on the tree because it wasn't right, and went up in another tree. And um, lo and behold, I actually did see the buck I was after that night. Didn't shoot him, but um, awesome. it uh, it can be one of those things. Hanging and hunting is is a great way to do it, but it, you've got to you've got to be like you said, you got to be willing to work a little bit. Take uh, Take some blows along the way. You do, and you're going to screw up like that. I mean, it's just things like that happen. You know, you can have the best system in the world, and you'll forget something eventually. and Or you'll pick the wrong tree, you know, get up there and just find out that it's not right. I mean, it's that's just the way it's going to happen. But the, the reward for doing that is can be awesome. Yeah. What's, what's your tree trimming policy been this year when a situation like that? Were you trimming much at all? Um, or do you just, uh, it depends on what kind of land you're on. You know, I mean, a lot of places you can't cut anything down if you're on public. And so I end up a lot of times having to sit on fairly open trees, you know, with not a lot of, a lot of limbs and branches on them. And I tend to face my stands away from where I think the deer are going to come from and kind of try to shoot around the trunk, mm-hmm. but it's a major hassle. You know, when I did it, I did this the same strategy in Minnesota as well. And then, you know, I trim a lot more and, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to cut stuff down, but you're always, you want to be careful about doing too much. And so I'm, I'm pretty minimal. I, I try to leave, you know, as little impact as possible. Um, when I'm doing it during the season, you know, preseason, if I got a place I can cut stuff down, I go nuts. I love cutting stuff down, but when you're, when you're showing up to hunt, it's, you know, you got to be a little more careful about that, you know, but that being said, if you have to get something down to be able to shoot, you got to take it, you know, like you don't want to be doing acrobatics in your stand to try to shoot around a limb or something like that. That's not going to help you at all. Yeah. The worst thing is when you've got that shooter buck that finally does exactly what you want him to do, but the one limb in the way is that one you're like, eh, I'm not going to cut it. Yep. Yeah. That's tough. If you hunt long enough, that will happen. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So when you look at this scenario, 
why do you think that the deer were using this spot that you ultimately found is like the best spot? Why were they using it the way they did? Why was that buck there? Was there a specific habitat feature or anything you saw that led yeah. you to be like why it worked? There was a just a, just a really subtle, almost like a bench on the hillside. Um, yeah, and again, I guess you could call it a ridge, but it was positioned between some private land to my west and the only field anywhere near me to the east, which wasn't that close, but it was the only game in town. And last year, at least that far north, you know, this past fall, we didn't have hardly any acorns. And so they were browsing and they were going to fields. I felt like they were willing to travel farther to get food. And that was just the place they could travel through where they wouldn't expose themselves to the ATV trails. People weren't going in there. And they could get to and from where they wanted to go without getting harassed. So it was, it just set up well, you know, and next year that may be totally different. If the acorns are dropping and there's something different in that field, that spot might die, you know, but this year it was, I think that's why it was so good. Yeah. Speaking of spots, you know, possibly dying or not, when you have hunted some of these public land areas in previous years and you're you're going into the new year, how how much of a chance do you give a spot before you decide, eh, something changed? You know, is it one hunt, and if that doesn't pan out, you're like, eh, I'm moving on to option B or C, or how do you gauge how much time to spend in one of these areas? I mean, it depends. It depends why it's, why I think it died. If it's people, which is most often the case, then I don't give it very much time. Uh, if I think, you know, a bunch of, bunch of guys have moved in there and are hunting, I, I go find something else. If it's just, you know, me not having figured something out, or if I believe that's the case, then I'll stick it out a little longer. You know, I always, I always think about, um, you know, I hunted North Dakota for five years on public land, and I figured out this area pretty well. I killed four good bucks in there, and but I never killed one in the same tree. They were all in the same area, but every single year I went there, something had changed where they were crossing the river in a little bit different spot or they were bedding up in the hills where the muley should have been, or something, you know, you know I don't know why, but the, it, it was always a little bit different. And so it wasn't like you just show up and go, well, I can just climb into that cottonwood and kill one when he crosses the river. It never happened for me that way. And so it's always, you know, it's always a process of just figuring out what's going on. That's why people like having land locked up so much. The, you know, the, the less influence from people and, it makes a big difference on how reliable your, your stuff can be. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> that's yeah. the truth of it. So you killed your Wisconsin buck. Well, I'm first kind of curious, what did that feel like? Because I feel like that's like a challenge that you had set yourself that's particularly difficult trying to kill one in, in the big woods like that. Did that feel more rewarding than some of your other hunts at all? Without question. It was awesome. I mean, it was just, it was it was really awesome because I had told everybody who would listen that I was going to do it in there. <laughs> and so I had forced myself to, to get after it and it was cool. And it was just, it was one of those deals where like, like I said, you know, I didn't have cameras. I was just hunting and I was seeing lots of deer and I was having a lot of fun. And then to have a deer do that, that you get to call in. And he, I mean, he came in like he was 250 inches. It was incredible. And just the overall hunt was awesome. You know, I mean, it, to me, that's, that's way more fun than some of the, some of the times, you know, like I've done industry hunts or something where I'll go on an outfitted hunt 
And you, know, you sit there and they say, well, the deer's supposed to show up here, and then it does, and you shoot it. You know, I mean, people want to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But to me personally, I just enjoy that going out there to places where anybody can and, and getting it done. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty awesome. So what happened after that? You, you've killed in two states already. What state was next? Minnesota. I had to, I had to, you know, I don't, I don't feel like a real man unless I throw my home state tag, you know? Um, <laughs> and so I had, to, I was getting my butt kicked a little bit and I went back home and hunted a few places and had a good encounter with a buck I did not expect close to my house here in the cities and got busted by him and ended up pushing it till Halloween weekend. And, uh, you know, when it was real hot and I ended up going out one morning and there was a, I have a stand that I set every year and I've never killed a big buck off of it. Um, but it's always a good place to see a few deer and that stand, I didn't intend to hunt it at all. I was doing the same thing when I was carrying stands in, um, and setting them. And I had been doing that and for some reason, I can't remember why the wind was bad or something. I had a morning to hunt and I, I didn't want to go to where I wanted to go. So I, I played it safe and I went back to the stand that I've never killed a big buck off of. And part, you know, partially because I knew there were some does living around there. It was close enough to Halloween. It was like the 29th or something. And I got into that stand and I had a doe tag. And I thought, well, if a doe gives me a good shot, I'm going to plunk her because I'm, I'm not going to see a big one probably here. And I had this doe come in, and I had passed up this doe. She's a, she's a loner, pretty distinctive. Uh, I passed her up earlier in the year because I didn't want to shoot her at that point. And I saw her coming, and I was like, oh, I'm going to shoot this doe this time. And she got closer, and I was like, hey, she looks like she might be getting chased. And so I let her go past, and nothing showed up. And I'm like, oh, I could have you know, put the venison in my freezer, <laughs> and I didn't. And you know, five minutes after she ran off, I heard the loudest grunt I've ever heard in my life. And I looked up and this buck was just barreling down the trail, grunting like, just, uh, like he was, you know, a zombie. It was crazy. And uh, I stopped him at 15 yards, shot him, and he ran up and tipped over, and my hunt was done. And I finally killed him after, like, I don't know how many years I've hung a stand in that stupid spot. I finally killed one in there, and it was all because that little doe brought him by. The, the doe that I didn't shoot earlier in the year. And I was like, God, that felt like fate or something. <laughs> yeah. So why do you think, I mean, was it purely a luck hunt or was there something about that setup that, you know, made it likely that a doe would bring a buck in? Well, there's always does in there. Um, that's one of the reasons I like it. And I, you know, I've killed bucks in there, but never any real big ones. And I knew from where I had set up the previous night and the pre- previous morning, I was close to where I, that buck, I knew where he was living and a couple of his buddies, but I just, that area that just, you don't have a lot of big bucks come through there. I suspect if you could hunt it all the way through the rut without the shotgun season coming in, it'd get real good, but it just usually doesn't. They usually hang back in the thicker stuff. It's kind of a more open woods. It looks, it looks more like a place you'd want to sit and put your back to a tree for a turkey. And, but that buck, he was he was real fired up in fact i ended up um after i went and found him i had to go pull a few stands so i could go home and out in the cornfield where they had come from it looked like that buck had covered every square inch of that cornfield running it was just like he was out of his mind and i don't know if that doe was coming into estrus or what um 
but it just it was one of those deals you know it's one of the reasons why we like hunting the last couple days of october and into november you know yeah so yeah definitely partially luck because um, that was not where i was intending to sit uh, but i sat there knowing there's those coming in there you know now, when you said earlier that you knew where this buck and some of these other bucks were, were hanging out, their core, their bedding area, how were you figuring that out from these previous hunts? What made you believe that? Um, well, he was he was living close to where the big one I've been following for a long time is. And this deer, he was real distinctive because he had split brow tines. Um, he, was, he seemed to be spending a lot of time at the fringe of this valley where that big one was living. So I just kind of incidentally paid attention to him quite a bit. Um, and I just knew, you know, I, I had actually gone in the night before and hunted where I thought that buck was living, um, partially because of the rubs, partially because of the, the earlier trail camera photos and stuff. And so I was set up not that far away from him, but it was just, it was just one of the areas he liked, you know, yeah, and I guess you know during the rut, like you said, if you're in the basic ballpark, you just need to be where the does are, and then he could show up. Well, yeah, and he was where I had went in and hung a stand the night before to hunt. There was a, there's a staging area in there, and that buck came from there. If I'd have been in, I think I could have killed him on any stand I had in that woods that morning. But I know he ran down the trail right by where I wanted to sit. But if I had gone in there, like we were talking about earlier, I would have had to go by that cornfield he was chasing in, and I probably would have blown him out. Yeah. So it's just one of those deals where it's like, you know, when, when things like that, you know, you hunt so much where that doesn't happen. But when it does, you're like, wow, look at all the different things that had to go into this to make it happen right. You know, and yeah. I'll, I'll take it. I, there, was, there was a good level of luck there, and I'll take that every time. Yeah, it's funny. If you, I feel like any successful hunt, if you look at it, it's like 10 million tiny little things had to go just right. And if any one of them was off, you probably wouldn't have yep. had that hunt. Um, so, yeah, there, there's always some luck. But then also I think a lot of times it's the attention to detail. It's the little things that you did that maybe you don't even think about anymore because you just know to do them that probably a lot of those little things led to it. That's That's been a big paradigm like shift for me is, is just over the years realizing how important every little step is because um, they add up. It, it, it is, and it, you know, one of the things that we don't really assign any credit to for this stuff is if you've been doing this a long time, you kind of just develop some intuition for it. You know, like, oh, I just kind of feel like sitting here or there, and look how often it works. You right. never hang out with anybody, you know, any of these older dudes that have been, you know, I, I always think about, like, duck hunters. I mean, you hunt around, hunt with somebody who really knows how to duck hunt, they just, you know, they just, they have this critter sense. And it's, you know, they know when to call, they know when to shut up, they know that the, when the decoy spreads right or not right, and there's so many little things to it that's so nuanced. And like you said, most of those guys, they're not thinking about it. I mean, not, you know, they're not devoting, you know, massive amounts of brain power to it. They're just going, oh, this is the way I do it. Or, you know, we should be on this point this morning or that point tomorrow morning or whatever. And they're right a lot. And, you know, we, 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 we can probably develop the same thing with deer, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that gut instinct, but the gut instinct usually is something, like you said, that's developed through experience, and um, it eventually becomes ingrained in your subconscious, but it takes a lot of experience to get there, I think. Sure. I, I think wholeheartedly yeah. that that's true. So 
State number four was in your sights now. What happened there? Uh, that was Nebraska, and that was that was a trip I wasn't even intending to do. Um, I was going to have a buddy come out and hunt my Wisconsin stuff, and I was going to just grouse hunt. Um, but his plans changed, and we decided to meet at my spot in Nebraska, or at a spot I like in Nebraska. And it was during that week when it was real hot. It was like we, I think I got down there on November 3rd. Um, and the day I got down there to this property, uh, my buddy had gotten there a few days before and said there was some dude from Michigan, probably one of your buddies maybe, <laughs> that was Uh-oh. driving driving a dirt bike all <laughs> over the this property is a is a section, so it's 640 acres, but you know a good portion of that is just wide open grassland where you know you couldn't hide a coyote pup in there, you know, and so most of the good hunting stuff is condensed into about half a section, and this dude had been hunting off of his dirt bike with a with a crossbow over his shoulder, oh, and wow. judging by the tracks uh, in, in the public land, he had covered serious ground. Um, well, the day that I got there, my buddy had told me this, but I wasn't there yet. And the day I drove down, I, I assume it was probably somebody from the park service there, uh, called in the conservation officer and he came in and put an end to that. But that guy, that one guy on a dirt bike had like blown all the gear off his property. It was like covered in sign and covered in tracks. Everything looked right, but you could not hardly see it here. I sat the first whole day in a spot where I've never had a bad hunt, and I saw two random lone fawns, and that was it. And I could see a lot. You know, this was Nebraska. Like, I could I could see some serious ground, and I'm like, all right, well, it's hot. There's been a ton of, you know, disturbance in here. And so I went back to camp, grabbed a stand, walked the other end of the property, hung it. I thought I got to get as far away from where this guy in the dirt bike was, which is you can only go a mile. Um, I hung a stand and came back. I grabbed another stand and walked into a spot that I just, I saw it on the map and I thought, you know, maybe a buck will come down, cruise through right along this little trout stream because it's really hot. It was 75 degrees and, uh, it was really thick cover down there, a lot of that cedar stuff next to the stream. And so I carried a stand in there. This is the second stand I've hung that day. And I hung that stand and looked around and found this little tiny clearing that had a great big rub and a scrape in it. It was maybe like the size of a living room, but it was right by the creek and just looked it looked good. So I hung that stand and sat down and, and kinda got ready and I'm like, All right, it's it's 75 degrees and probably not going to see any deer activity till, you know, right before dark. And like 10 minutes later, I looked over and I saw this rack coming through the brush and it was the most miserable looking buck I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like he looked like he just hated every step he had to take, but it was November 4th and you could just see it like in his face. He's like, I'm so miserable, but I have to find a doe. <laughs> he came walking in. I stood up, turned around, and he, I stopped him at like 12 yards and shot him, and my hunt was over. Wow. And I, I spent the rest of the time there trying to get my buddy a deer, and so I had a fall turkey tag, too, and I kind of wanted to mess around a little bit. And I never saw another buck or a mature doe on that property the entire time I was there. Wow. 
But it, and it's, I mean, you'd go down, check out a, like a creek crossing down there, and it was just pounded. So you know those deer were there, but one guy on a dirt bike changed everything. And, it, you know, I'm sure that there was going to be some suppressed movement because it was hot, but it wasn't going to shut it down that way. Yeah. So well, it was. Uh, I was, I was going to say, so in that scenario, why did you decide to still hunt that property despite the dirt bike debacle? Uh, because it's, it's, it's a good property and it's, it's a creek bottom. And so I set up really close to the property line where those deer would potentially come filtering back in from the private land. And so I would have moved if that wouldn't have worked out, I'd have maybe hunted it one or two more days and then I would have moved. But I knew, you know, it's the rut. Um, you're on water, you're in a place where they like to cruise. And I knew he had blown a lot of deer off that property. You could just tell. And so when, you know, he was done riding by the time I had showed up. So I figured it was possible they'd start filtering back in. And, you know, one did, I guess. Yeah. One really unlucky, miserable buck came back <laughs> and got shot. So, so again, I've, I've asked this co- the question a couple times, but why was that spot right for that buck do you think it was just because that was the good cover of the creek and he was following it or was there something else going on um he was following the creek for sure you know i think he was down there getting a drink i you know i shot him at like 4 15 it was it was still real toasty out and i think what he was doing was just checking the few places that were real thick that he could stay close to water and he wanted to cruise and that's where he was going to do it you know it wasn't it just wasn't the kind of situation where you're going to go sit up on an open, you know, a grassy hillside or, you know, a grassy top next to a field and see a big buck cruising, you know, nose to the ground, uh, going crazy. It just wasn't going to happen then. So I just figured the best bet was to get where they're going to be the most comfortable. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think, or I guess, did you learn anything this year from these from these hunts that you think you'll apply to future years? Was there anything that changed your way of looking at the hunting world or your strategy? Yeah, yeah, I'm going back to the way I used to hunt. I mean, I'll run, I'll run cameras this summer, and I'll have a few places where I'll run them, but I'm going to go back to carrying a stand in and looking for sign. I mean, not only because it was defective, but it was just enjoyable. And so I, I just, I, I want to like rid myself of these crutches that we think are helping us and they maybe aren't. And so that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm like big into, you know, proving things wrong, <laughs> proving people wrong. And so like if somebody sits there and tells me, you know, oh, you can't kill one if the wind's blowing 30 miles an hour, I'll hunt that wind every time. And eventually I'll kill one, you know, like I just kind of like that style. And, and after, after this year, just seeing what I saw and having consistently good hunting and lots of sightings throughout times when you shouldn't, it just told me that this is probably the way I should be doing it. Now, you know, that's probably partially because maybe I'm playing to my strengths. I love, you know, scouting. I love carrying stands in and hanging them, and I, I don't mind that work. You know, some people don't have the time. Some people don't have the places to do that. And so it's, you know, it's not a, one-size-fits-all strategy. But for me, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit on the sign piece? Because we talked a little bit about, you know, looking for certain things. But in general, how do you 
rank certain types of sign, I guess, in importance to you? And like what specifically will give you a, okay, yeah, I'm stopping right now. This is something I need to be hunting on right now versus this is something that is going to be filed away as a piece of data, but I'm going to keep looking. Well, I mean, for me, if, you know, like I, like I said before, I mean, I hunt a lot of water. I like water a lot. I think it's the, one of the most reliable things you can hunt. So if I get to a you know, secluded pond and it's covered in tracks, I will hunt that no matter what. Or a creek crossing or a river crossing or something. I love all that stuff. But for the most part, for me, I'm just looking for rubs. I mean, I, big rubs, little rubs, any kind of rubs. If I see that, I know bucks spent time there. And if I see it in the thick cover, I know they probably did that in daylight. And I'll tell you, you know, that big buck that I watched in Wisconsin um, when I was kind of on that observation stand, that was a really good deer. And I watched him make a rub. And when I went up to it, you would have swore a forky made it. It was just this little tiny rub that you would have never guessed that size of buck made it. And I've always kind of felt that way about, especially early season, you know, as you get closer to the rut, all those rubs pop up and it's, it's a little bit different. But if you find rubs in September or early October, I love hunting there. I just, I have had such good luck in my life using that as kind of my compass on where I should set my stands. Now, is there like a certain number of rubs you have to see in a certain amount of area to say, okay, this is enough? Because I'm assuming like one rub on its own, or I guess that's a question, is one rub on its own enough for you to say, I want to hunt here? Or do you need to see, you know, five within a hundred yard area or 10 within that? Or what's how, what's that threshold? Now, I'll, hunt, I'll hunt a single rub. Um, in fact, where I killed that buck in Wisconsin, that's what I had, that's what I was working off of originally. Um, just it's, if I see a rub, if I'm, if I'm in good cover and I see a rub like that, especially early season, I'll a lot of times start looking around. Now you might find it in a place where you can't set up or you might just think, you know, bet down this ridge a little ways is going to be better. So it's not, you know, like go find a rub and just sit over it and hope he comes back. But it's like just such a good jumping off point. Uh, If you see one or if you see a couple, it's a good time to start looking around and start thinking about whether there's a good observation point or is it worth paying attention to more? And, you know, the one thing about, you know, not to totally beat this, you know, dead horse here, but the typical strategy is if you go out and find that, you hang a camera on it, right? Or hang a camera on the nearest trail. Well, when you start hunting this kind of stuff, that buck will, maybe never come back to that individual tree the entire season. He may not rub it again, but that area, he might be using it a lot. So that camera might get him or it might not. But if you sit there in a tree stand where you can see around you and see for quite a ways and hear for quite a ways, you have a lot better chance of figuring out what he's actually doing there. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot of value to that. You know I mean? I'm not saying there isn't value to hanging a camera there, but if you can afford to spend the time to set up and watch, there's a lot of value to that. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, why rubs and not scrapes? Because I hate scrapes. <laughs> <laughs> I I have hunted scrapes so much and killed so few deer on them. Um, in fact, I did a little experiment this year just for the heck of it. And I, I took some uh, nationwide scents, uh, running buck scent, and the weekend that I killed my buck in Minnesota – I went into where I thought that big one was hanging out, and I dumped 
a whole bottle of that into a scrape, and I hung a camera on a video mode over it and left it alone. And just thought, I'm just going to see who's really coming to this scrape during the time when they should be. And it was really interesting because I didn't hardly have any visits from good bucks in daylight. And then one day I had a couple of really good bucks come in and work that scrape. And then that big boy came in in the dark and worked it. And the, the crazy part about it was only one of those bucks actually pawed up the scrape, but every buck came in and worked the licking branch. Yeah. It was incredible. And so what that tells me is I probably don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to scrapes <laughs> because that really surprised me. And I've just never, you know, when I was younger, we used scrapes a lot and we hunted them and it just never, it was never like a consistently reliable method for me to hunt. And so, you know, I don't mind seeing scrapes and, you know, I don't mind hunting around them, but when I'm walking in and I see a scrape, it just doesn't, it doesn't get my spidey senses tingling the way a a good rub does. Interesting. Now, when we were leading up to this, we were talking about rubs. The first thing you said, though, you really like to focus on is water. Um, Is there any times of year when that's going to change. I, I'm assuming my assumption is that early season, of course, when it's hot, water for sure is great. But are you, are you still keying in on water in late October or early December or some other time of the year? Um, you know, not by December. You know, when I get into when I get into the true late season, I tend to hunt a lot of staging areas around food. I don't I don't have a lot of places where I can sit and kill deer out in a good food plot or a you know field. But that time of year, it's primarily staging areas off of food. So it's a food-centered pattern. But the rest of the time this season, uh, I'll take water over anything. I love I love hunting water. And part, part of that is because I hunt a lot of public land, and so it's not like you're relying on food plots. Or, you're, you know, a lot of public land doesn't have agriculture on it. And so you got to look at what, what are you going to be able to hunt that's going to consistently draw deer in. And there's, there are very few things out there that are more consistent than just water, the right kind of water. Do you see any difference between the, you mentioned the right kind of water, are there certain types? So like, is a small pond better than a stream or a big pond better than a river or anything like that? Um, ponds are the best, I think, because they're easiest to hunt. It's so concentrated. And so does a pond draw more deer than a stream? Probably not, but one thing I like about them is they're often located in cover, which is always good. And there are ponds where I can set a stand up over it and shoot every single animal that comes into that pond in any direction. And so you get on a stream, you're hunting crossings, you know, but you also have the benefit of deer maybe cruising down it, but it's just, it's situational. You know, I mean, it gets to the point where bigger rivers aren't as much fun, obviously. Um, but if it's, you know, it's an easily weightable stream, it can be good, but my ultimate is just the right pond because it's you. If you find that, it, it can be so good, and you can have all the deer to yourself on that little water source. How does the wind factor into how you set up on those ponds? Are you setting up to make sure that your wind's blowing away from the pond when the deer is actually there, or are you considering deer maybe using the wind to approach? What's your thoughts there? Um, it depends. You know, it depends where I think they're going to come from. Um, a lot of times I like to set up so the wind's blowing right over the pond um, because either they won't get me because they're not going to go right out in the middle of the pond or 
if they come in in such a way where they might get me, I'm probably going to kill them first. And so it's just, it's, you know, it's situational. It's people ask me questions like that all the time. Like, well, I have this place to set up, right. but sometimes the wind is bad. And it's like the variables are infinite, you know? So it just depends you know, where are they going to come from? How are they going to use it? Um, are you going to be able to shoot them before they get, get your wind? You know, just, just a lot of things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. What about, so, so one of the big things you did this year that you think you're going to apply to future years is, is moving away from trail cameras and, and being focused on, you know, observing, adjusting, et cetera. That was something you did right. Was there any big mistake you made this year that you want to make sure you don't do in the future or series of mistakes? Um, yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, you know, I, I think that that big one that I almost kind of hope he got shot so I don't have to worry about him next year. <laughs> I don't know if he did or not. Um, I, I really don't hope he did, but he may have. Uh, but just just so, you know, singularity of focus on that deer when there were quite a few deer that I'd have been super happy with. And what happened to me is I didn't want to go hunt anywhere else but where he was or I thought he was because it, I didn't want to go sit there and have a, you know, a great buck come by but wasn't him. And so I didn't enjoy hunting as much and that was stupid you know i should have just said you know if, if i get the right wind i get the right chance to go in after him great but i'm going to hunt these other areas just as hard and just as smart and enjoy it and if a good buck comes by and i'm happy with it i'm going to shoot him you know i kind of fell into that trap and I, I got out of it pretty quick you know when the dogs came in and things like that but it just it, it changed things for me and i've got a buddy you know who i bow hunt with a lot who's a good friend of mine and he got into the same situation. He had a buck living on a farm that only he has permission to hunt. And just from the trail cameras, we thought it was like 180s for sure. Yikes. And he did the same thing where he's like, I got to try to kill this deer. And he didn't. And that buck got shot during shotgun season on the neighbor's farm and ended up going 202. Oof. And so, so it's truly a once in, you know, one in 1,000 lifetimes type of deer. But at the same time, you know, you got little kids, you got a family, you don't have tons and tons of time to devote to these deer, and you're going out hunting specifically for a buck you're probably not going to kill. It just, it changes things. You know, and it's, in the right situation, they're worth going after, but not to the point where you start losing the enjoyment. And I did that to myself, and I, I didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things kind of like we were talking about early on where you know, there's a certain type of enjoyment of hunting a managed property versus a certain type of enjoyment out of hunting public property. The same thing goes, I think, with this type of thing where there's a certain type of satisfaction with targeting one single buck, but at the same time, there's something to be said about just hunting and enjoying whatever you know Mother Nature sends by you. Yep. And um, yep. if you end up losing the enjoyment out of it, well, then you know what the heck are you doing it for? Well, exactly, and, you know, I, I kind of look at it like, you know, for me, it, there's even a financial incentive to kill big ones because I get more articles out of it and more publicity and blah, 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 but even that doesn't really make it, doesn't, it doesn't really feel like it justifies it for me to lose the enjoyment, and, you know, for a lot of people to, to focus on deer of that caliber, it's just like, you know, it's, it's, it, it'd be like, if, if I got divorced tomorrow and I was like, you know, it's going to be Victoria's Secret models for me here on out, I'd be a lonely, sad dude in a hurry <laughs> because my odds are just not good that that's going to shake out. You know, like, 
just you got, you got to play within your means, you know, yeah. <laughs> and and you got to go have some fun with it. Very true. That, that's some wise advice right there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you can have that. That's awesome. So I've got one final question for you, Tony. Um, what is one thing that you do or believe that's counterintuitive or counter to popular, you know, popular beliefs out there when it comes to hunting, other than some of the things we've talked about so far? Is there anything out there that most people would think is crazy, but you strongly believe in when it comes to how you hunt or things you do? Well, um, you know, probably a lot of stuff. You know, I'm I'm pretty contrarian. You know, I I think you can kill them in the wind and the rain and the heat in all kinds of conditions. I I think that's maybe, you know, maybe the way I run against the grain the most is that I'm just going to hunt always. Every chance I have, I'm going to go sit and I'm going to find a way to do it. And if it's, you know, whether it's sit a, sit a stand I have a lot of hope for or play it safe and back off and observe, I just am always going to be out there. And, you know, a lot of the advice out there is, is don't do that. Don't go in, don't risk messing it up, save it for the perfect conditions. And the problem is, you know, I'm sitting here with a job and, and you know, twin five-year-olds, and it's not like I'm just going to have every opportunity in the world to hunt no matter what. So if that, you know, perfect day comes up, there's a much better chance I'm taking my kids to daycare in the morning than sitting in a tree stand. And so I'm just going to hunt when I can, no matter what, whether it's hot or windy or super crappy out or something's going on. And a lot of times that really works out for you. Yeah. And so, you know, it, I guess it's kind of the, the overarching theme to this conversation is go hunt and have fun. You know, like you start taking it a little bit too seriously and you start losing that enjoyment and you start, you know, saying, well, I can't hunt now because I'll ruin this. Well, what if you go hunt and have a lot of fun? You know, like what if you go sit in the woods and it's a great time even if you don't kill a big buck? Yeah. Like that's probably still worth it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's this is something that probably a lot of people, you know, need to hear at this time of year too. After a lot of us have, you know, wrapped up what for some people maybe was a great season, but for others maybe it was a season full of stress and frustration because of you know getting caught up in this stuff a little bit too much. I'm I'm certainly guilty of it at times, and um, it's it's always important to take a step back and remember why we're doing this in the first place. Sure, and you know, I mean, I think we all know that. I think we forget it because if you were. I mean, if, if you were to look at the success rates, you know, for bow hunting, it, it would seem insane for 70% of the people to ever go hunting because they're not going to kill one. Right. But we all do. We all go. And a lot of people go that don't kill stuff very often, and there's there's a reason for that. <laughs> there's, there's more to it than, you know, a bloody arrow at the end of the day. Yeah. That, uh, I think that right there is probably the best way we can wrap this episode up, Tony. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for chatting with us here and, and kind of divulging the secrets of your 2016 season because you're obviously doing a lot of things right, and uh, I think it's going to help a lot of people out there. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Tony. Good luck uh, in your scouting and work this winter leading up to the next one. Thanks. You too. And so there you go. We are going to wrap this one up. So big thank you to our partners who help keep this podcast on the air. Thanks to Sitka Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntero Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all again for spending this time with us. And until next time, stay wired to hunt.
I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.